Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this podcast, if you've never heard it before, is where I ask various people to tell me the five things from their life they would like to put in a time capsule. Four things they love, and one they loathe, and would like to lock away for good. If you have heard this podcast before, sorry to waste your time with stuff you already know. And thanks for your patience. Anyway, to the heart of the matter. My guest revealing their five time capsule items in this episode is the Manchester-born actor John Bradley West, who, three months after leaving drama school, was cast as the character Samuel Tarly, Jon Snow's best friend in the then-new drama Game of Thrones. It turned out to be quite a hit as you may have heard. John was in 48 episodes of Game of Thrones over the next eight years, but he's also appeared in Borgia, Merlin, Shameless, The Last Dragon Slayer, he played a young Les Dawson in Urban Myths, and provided voices for Robot Chicken. He's also been in the films Anna Karenina, Traders, American Satan, Patient Zero, Marry Me and Moonfall, amongst others. So it's been quite a decade for the, as you're about to discover, very lovely John Bradley West. But let's find out if any of it will make it into the four things he cherishes and the one thing he would like to banish. I hope you enjoy it. John, how lovely to see you and how lovely to have you on my time capsule. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, as, as I was saying just before we came on here, I... Lucky enough to be in Canada making a film towards the end of last year, and because of COVID and the and the restrictions that were in place, a lot of our downtime had to be very solitary and very solo. And I was always on the lookout for new podcasts to listen to, and chanced across yours and blasted a lot of my time capsules back to back, and it really got me through that period. So I'm very grateful, and I'm very flattered and honoured to be asked aboard. <laughs> it didn't make you think, oh yeah, I must get back to normal life so I don't have to listen to this old fart. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> no. Not at all. I do find that when I'm away, especially, especially, I mean, in Canada's not exactly too alien a territory, but I do find that when I am away, I do like to listen to, not necessarily English voices, but, but voices that are talking about a frame of reference that I'm very much locked into. The first one I listened to, I think, was your David Jason episode. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that was that was fascinating. But also it was very, <clears throat> there's something about him and something about you as well that, that's very familiar and very comforting. And it was just nice to have that voice in my <laughs> ear while I was out there. It was, it was a really nice, warm and comforting experience. So thanks very much. Oh, uh, that's lovely. 
And so here you are with me doing it. You're a Manchester man, aren't you? I'm a Manchester boy. I say that in all true senses of the word. In fact, you're a Manchester born and bred and also a Manchester United supporter. I'm a ginormous Manchester United supporter. And you, you never know, we may touch upon that later on in the podcast. Who knows? But I'm Manchester born, Manchester bred and Manchester living. Still, I've resisted the temptation to move away so far just because I like it here and I, I like still feeling connected to the people that I've known all my life. And... I think you only get to have a proper perspective on on a different life, on the film and TV life and the, and the press life and all of that kind of stuff. I think I've managed to maintain a perspective on that because I've always come home and talked to my same friends and talked to my family about it. And it feels like I have sort of two separate lives and I've never really bought into the machine of it. I've always gone in there kind of as a visitor and then come back out of it to my old life again. And I think that that's been a very sort of beneficial one, mm. I think. It feels like that sort of helped me out that I've not bought into it wholesale. Yeah, it could drive you mad, couldn't it? That I mean, it happened for you very quickly, didn't it? Yeah, exactly. It was. I went to drama school in Manchester. We may we may get onto that as well. But uh, and, and, and then I started Game of Thrones season one three months after I left. Wow. It was my first day's filming. And, and yeah, it's, it's not stopped since then. But I think because of that, I, I, you know, it's that worry that actors have sometimes. And you hear it a lot when people say, oh, because that happened, I worry that I've missed out on a certain degree of life experience, which can sort of help. Uh, you know, it's quite often a lot of the best performances are given by people who have experienced some of those things in their real life. Like Ricky Gervais, for example, in The Office, he, he worked in an office for years and years before he became an actor and before he played that part. And you can tell that it's so rich in detail and observation. Mm. And, and sometimes you do have that pang of worry that you've gone straight from drama school into the industry and you're just slightly lacking a little bit of colour, a little bit of texture maybe, which means that you're only ever always copying <laughs> and you're never sort of ascribing any of your own life experience to a part. And that's, I mean, everything is drawn from within, obviously, but you do think that there may be sort of blind spots. Of normality, do you mean? Yeah. Because, in fact, life goes on, no matter how bizarre it is or how ridiculous it may look to other people. Life goes on and you are gaining experiences all the time. I see what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. But... Sometimes I think that people blindly grabbing for something that they haven't personally experienced will produce a performance that is quite disturbing or right. not what you expected at all. So I'm not sure it necessarily will hamper you. Well, no, no, I, I hope not. But you know yourself that, that as actors, I mean, self-absorbed is a word that is, is a phrase that I don't use lightly. <laughs> but Yeah, can we talk about me a bit more, please? Well, exactly. But in, in terms of the things that keep other people awake at night. There are serious worries in the world, and it says something about an actor that they're kept awake at night by the thought of, am I missing out on a little bit of life experience <laughs> that could help my technique? Yeah, by going into a massive television series and then films, rather than just struggling in a flat. God, I wish I'd done that. <laughs> well, let's stop talking like that then, because I know that's not what you're saying. But let's talk about the things you want to put into a time capsule. You're going to choose five things. I am, yeah. And I try to pick them for a variety of reasons, really. Some universal and some personal. And we're going to start with something that, that shares both of those qualities, really. It's a, it's a coin, a coin that my granddad gave me when I was young. And... There's a, a few different reasons why I'd like this to be in there. Firstly, I've always loved money. And when I say money, I don't really mean wealth. I just mean the physical objects, the coins especially. I find them absolutely beautiful things. And I used to have a box of all loose change. I used to ask my parents and their friends, do you have any loose change? And I used to put it in this box and I just used to count it over and over again and I sort it into piles and order it. And I found it a very relaxing and sort of therapeutic thing to do when I was when I was a kid I could I could do it for hours and I think that in a world where money is becoming more and more such a theoretical thing physical money is disappearing especially sort of in in the pandemic where you're doing so much online stuff you're not going into shops as often and paying with cash and getting change physical money sort of disappearing and 
the kind that my granddad left me, gave me while he was still alive, just, I think, was a, an 1888 American silver dollar coin. It's absolutely enormous. It's a, it's a great big fat... It looks, it's like the size of an Olympic medal, a great big <laughs> fat thing. There's something beautiful about it because it sort of makes sense that this thing has value. Mm. It has a value beyond the monetary value that it was worth. It feels right that this chunk of metal can be swapped for you know, what they call goods and services, you know what I mean? Chattels. Chattels, yeah. You go into a shop and you stick this big, heavy coin down on the counter and they give you things in return for it. The value of that makes sense to me Mm. in a way that numbers disappearing out of a bank account don't really. You don't get a sense of the value of the transaction, I don't think, in quite the same way. And so I preserve it for that reason, because to preserve the, the physicality of that transaction, I think, is a nice thing to to sort of preserve. But also, the dates match up for this coin so perfectly. It's an 1888 coin, so it's, a, it's always going to be exactly 100 years older than I am. Oh. I was born in 1988, so that, I mean, it's, it's a much better nick than I am. But <laughs> just to get that, that line back through history, that no matter how old I am, this thing is 100 years older. And it was struck the same year that, that my granddad's mother, my great-grandmother, was born. She was born exactly 100 years older than me, so it's exactly as old as she is and exactly 100 years older than me. And I think that there's something very neat and tidy and romantic about feeling the weight of that line back through history mm. in this object. Yeah, I'm like you. I really like the... I mean, I know they're coincidences, but I really enjoy the coincidences of dates matching up. Yeah. The moment you said 1888, I thought, I wonder what the significance of it was. I wondered if it was because a certain event had taken place. But for it to be a 100 years before your birth and then the, the birth of your grandmother great grandmother great grandmother yeah great grandmother it's fantastic yeah and, and, and you know great grandmother given to me by my granddad and then a hundred years older than me it feels like a yeah like a line that you follow through history there that we all sort of play our part and one day i'll give it to i might wait until 2088 and give it to my great grandson or something there's just something <laughs> and, and that's why i sort of want to preserve it really because it tells that story of the sort of recent history of my family through those dates. And, you know, my granddad, I used to love going around to my grand and granddad's house because they had these bizarre objects. And my, my granddad found out that I was getting into collecting coins and he said, oh, I might have something for you. And he gave me this, but I knew that he would because he was, they weren't hoarders necessarily in so much as the place was disorganised, but they kept everything and everything <laughs> had its place. And when I used to go around, I used to, a lot of kids have this. When they go around to their grandparents, they obsess about certain objects because you don't really know the story of the object, but it just becomes a part of that vision of their home. Mm. And it's there's something familiar about it. I remember going in and finding they had a sword once. I was looking in, I was always nosing about looking in drawers and I found this sword. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, what are they doing with this? This is, this is epic. Like, what's the story behind this? And now, since then, I've realised that it was just a souvenir that somebody had brought them back from holiday and it was supposed to be mm. wall-mounted. But because I didn't know that, my imagination spun off into all sorts of amazing, fantastical areas because I didn't have any knowledge of the story of it. So it takes me back to that as well. It's a lovely thing to have that, though, as a child. It's a shame when you lose it, I think, that when you see something, you immediately imagine this fantastical story. See, you mentioning that coin, I think... Who handled it? Oh, yeah. In 1888. I mean, I can picture it being tossed in the air, glinting and landing on a, on a wooden bar and somebody saying, you know, two shots of red eye, please. Exactly. It's amazing. And, and I think that that's something, that's something that's very romantic about coins as well, that they all have... Imagine finding out the story of even, even a pound coin in, you know, probably the pound coins now don't have enough of a story to them. But if you, if you, if you get one of, the, one of the last old pound coins... Imagine all the hands that that had been in, the journeys that that coin had been on. There's something fascinating about, you know, you, you could almost write a short film about telling the story of the life of a pound coin. <laughs> Somebody's going to pick that Somebody's up. Somebody's going to pick that up, yeah. It's such a good idea. Yeah. and Just following a coin from hand to hand. Exactly. So, so that, that there's enough reasons why it kind of justifies its existence in my time capsule, but that's one of them, definitely. Yeah. It feels like it's been absorbing history. For all this time. I mean, it may have been in my 
granddad's sideboard for 30 years. But before <laughs> that, he must have come from America and finished up in Manchester. Yeah. And even that story alone is interesting enough to try and explore. So I think, I think that it's a... It's really justified its existence in my time capsule. It's almost like a time capsule in itself. Indeed. All the stories and the history and the, and the sentimentality that's in it. Mm. I wouldn't like to think of a future without it. I'd ask you what your granddad did, but unless you say spy, I'm going to be very disappointed. Well, if he was a spy and I know about it, wasn't a very good spy. <laughs> That's the thing about spies. You can imagine anybody's a spy because even if you ask them what they do and it's not a spy, you can say, yeah, but a spy wouldn't say they were a spy. <laughs> so I, I've got that to, I've got that to uh, cling on to, I suppose. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely not a spy, John. Definitely. Oh, interesting. Interesting. <laughs> say no more. Well, I always thought with the, uh, the introduction of the euro, it was such a shame to lose all those European currencies. Coins with holes in them and things like that. Oh, yeah. All that kind of stuff. I remember when I was a kid, do you remember there was a great magazine called Money of the World? I don't. I was an avid collector of of Money of the World where every every month you got an issue of the magazine and you got either a coin or a note with it. (laughs) And the magazine told you the story of that thing. It's probably still at my mum somewhere, my collection of Money of the World. But yeah... I mean, the journey that coins go on, Brian May still plays his guitar with an old silver sixpence, I think. Does he? And of, of course, he doesn't, doesn't have one of them, but you can sort of buy them in from the yeah. bank. You can buy them in huge bags, these old coins. And I think I'd like to, if I had the space to do it, I'd love to really expand that coin collection and have a sort of room of, of all these beautiful old coins. If it, to be honest, I didn't know that you could still get them that easily. No. I didn't know that you could still go to the bank or whatever, or, or the reserve, and pick up a load of old sixpences. If I knew that... You'd have them all over the place. Flat, I'd be chock-a-block with them, exactly, yeah, so... <laughs> when you said that Brian May plays his guitar with a sixpence, and I said, does he? The moment I said it, I thought, well, I know he does. I don't know why I said does he, because I sat in a dressing room during a recording of Alas Smith and Jones. All oh, right. And Brian May often appeared on that program. I don't know why. And he, whenever he came, he always brought his guitar with him. And I've sat in his dressing room while he played away on his guitar, the one that his dad made for him. On that guitar. On oh, that God. guitar. And he did use a sixpence now that I think back. That's amazing, that, isn't it? Yeah, I think, I think. You do find that with, with a lot of musicians and a lot of actors, and I'm sure you may be like this or you certainly work with people who are, that the idea of routine for people who, with that artistic sensibility to them is quite overwhelming sometimes in terms of he has to still play with the same type of coin that he's always played with. And I wonder what that is. I often think that actors have these superstitions and I sort of have some of them as well, and I'm sure that you do in a way that you have a routine that you go through. Because I think that in an industry that feels so out of control and feels like you have, you're at the mercy of a lot of different things, mm. I think that you, ha- you have to try and maintain control of the things that you can be in control of, I think. I think that anchors you to something. So the idea that Brian playing with this coin, it may be something to do with the sound, but I think it's also because you like to anchor yourself to a routine so you feel in control of things. And I think, I think that I, I've, I can completely understand where that impulse comes from, I think. Yeah, for me, half a bottle of scotch before I go on any stage. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. That's what it is. Well, yeah. It's... <laughs> <laughs> right, OK, so I'm going to take that gorgeous, shiny silver dollar from 1888 yes. and I'm going to put it safely into a drawer, you know, sideboard somewhere yeah. with some cotton wool. Oh, that's a lovely idea. I really want it to be safe and not tarnish. Oh, that's a lovely idea. Thank you for that. That's a lovely thought. Okay, great. Well, that's your first item in the time capsule. So what's your second item, John? My second is a book, The Collected Dramatic Works of Joe Orton, which is the copy that I bought myself 11 years ago. Bought it secondhand, bought it off the internet, I think. I was a student. And it takes me right back to the final term of drama school, the final play of the final term of drama school. As we were going into that term, they always put the, the plays and the parts on the board before you break up for the last holidays before the term. And I, I'd had some good parts in the third year so far. I'd, I'd done, we'd done Three Sisters and I was Andre in Three Sisters. as a part that I, I'd still like to go back to one of these days. I, but I hadn't had a lead yet. I hadn't had a sort of 
duel in the crown lead yet. And so the, so the plays <laughs> went up for the, for the final term and I was looking and it, the first, it wasn't in the first place, so I thought that's not a good start. Second play, oh, I'm in it, but right down at the very bottom, a bit like, oh, this, this isn't looking good at all. And then the third <laughs> play in, in the list, Joe Orton's Erpingham Camp was going to be the final play of our drama school life. Mm. And I looked at the cast list and I was, it said Erpingham, John Bradley. <laughs> and I thought, well, that can't be, that can't be a bad thing to be named after the camp in the play. I thought this is finally my sort of, my sort of big thing. And I just remember it being, it was quite, it, it was, it was a, a time of sort of different emotions really, because there was something exciting about finishing drama school and going out into this industry, you know, feeling trained after, after three years of training, you're as formally trained as you're kind of ever going to be, but you're told stories. You always get that reality check about the industry being very cutthroat and very unpredictable. And chances are you're going to be out of work a lot. So, so, so there was also a certain degree of trepidation about it, mm. finishing this play. And, and I really, really enjoyed the rehearsal process of it. And now I look back, the reason I think that I bathe it in such golden light when I think about it is because it was the last time, really, that acting wasn't a job and therefore had very little in the way of stakes to it. Mm. There was very little consequences of it going wrong. <laughs> you were doing it for a, a couple of, a, maybe a hundred people, and most of them were your friends or they were staff or parents and things. And I think ever since then, well, as soon as you start working professionally, your relationship with acting changes because you maybe you still enjoy it, but you don't really feel that sense of that sort of joyful sense of abandon and just acting for the fun of it that you had before it was your job because now the stakes are so much higher. There's money, there's time, there's a certain expectation of you that you know people want you for this part and you've got to prove to them that you can do it, all of that stuff. But when I think about that final term, when I think about Erpingham Camp, I just think it was such a great time to say goodbye to that relationship that I once had with acting and start a new relationship with it, like a slightly different perspective on it. Mm. I remember standing there and thinking on the final night and just thinking to myself, where do I, where do I stand here? Do I feel trained? Do I feel capable enough to go into an industry that could just prove to be a, a great big failure? I remember being on that stage and, having a calmness descend on me as I was doing the play and just feeling absolutely in control, <laughs> completely in control of myself and, mm. and knowing what to do and how to do it to make the audience respond the way I wanted them to. And even though those audiences have quite kindly, because they want you to do well, because they're your friends and the, the public were allowed in and we did have some public in, but, but I remember the, hearing them really laugh. <laughs> really, really properly laugh in a way that didn't feel polite and didn't feel generous. It felt instinctive and it felt like they, they were laughing in a, in a proper way. Mm. And that made me think, well, maybe, you know, maybe it just filled me full of confidence and thinking maybe I can go and do something in this industry because I feel prepared for it. You never stop learning and go, going from that and going into TV and professional theatre and film, it's a completely different beast, I know. But I remember feeling... I've got quite a good chance of being able to do something here because just the confidence that that performance in that play gave me. And and, you know, and aside from all of that, the personal stuff, I just think Joe Orton's such a incendiary and subversive figure. I, I, I don't think the future will suffer from having Joe Orton injected into it from my uh, time capsule. I think it can only be a good thing to preserve that mind and preserve that attitude yeah that lovely idea of going into public libraries and writing rude things in books yeah it's so unique exactly and, he, and he's one of those people as well that you just think what would he have done mm. what would he have done if he was allowed to keep going mm. you know what i mean and, and sometimes you do find with people like that who are, who are literally cut down in their prime their genius is preserved because you never get to see any kind of fading away or you don't you don't really get to see any failures that would probably would have inevitably come later on but because of the way it happened that body of work that genius body of work is preserved and nobody's ever gonna sort of 
compromise the effectiveness and the genius and the artistry of those plays. And that's what we've got to remember him by. And I wonder, in fact, whether that sort of genius and that sort of inspired work comes from that very thing that you were talking about, that that abandon, that I don't feel any particular responsibility to anyone here. I feel free. Yeah. And therefore they do produce this amazing work. I always think that stage performances, working in the theatre, gives you that chance again to rediscover that thing because you go through a very rigorous process of rehearsing it, a director really sort of guiding you through something to the point where they say, this is the performance we want, this is my show. And then you put it on for the first couple of nights and then the director goes away. And for me, that's always the moment that I love because you go, right, now it's mine. (laughs) (laughs) But that's that's something that I've missed out on because I've I've never done a professional play right i left drama school in 2010 i've never either been able to do it or to just not sort of fancied anything that's that's come up but i've got to do it i just have to do it because part of me feels that even though i was trained in in theater it's completely different discipline to just doing it every single night for months and months on end and i think that that is in many ways the sort of ultimate test of an actor's endurance and stamina and and creativity as well to keep keeping it, keep mm. keeping the ball in the air and keeping it fresh. And I wonder if you will, if you go back when you finally do do that. I, well, I'm sure the opportunity will arise at some point because careers go all over the place. But I wonder when you yeah. do that, if you'll stand on the stage and have that same feeling that you had. It's a lovely thought and I, and I really hope that is the case. But you do think that the longer, it's like exercising, you know, you do think the longer that you go without it, <laughs> the less capable you'll be if you decide to do it again. And I think that that's what, that's partly one of the reasons that's kept me from doing it, I think. That I, I just I just assume that those muscles, the muscles that you need to do that, are so sort of out of condition after not doing anything like that. Even, you know, not even doing a, a drama school or amateur production in 11 years. Mm. You just worry that that, that muscle has degraded to the extent that I just I, it'll just feel completely alien to me and I and and that's the thing as soon as you know that I can only imagine it being quite depressing because if you don't do it that's the thing if you don't do it you can always imagine that it'd go well mm. but if you do it and it doesn't then you can't fool yourself you have to have <laughs> that reality you have to have the reality check of thinking no I actually I'm not capable of doing that job and I think it's not really wanting to know if I can still do it or not, but just believe in that I can. Does that, does that make sense in some way? Yeah. It's funny the different times at which that thought occurs to actors, because I've known actors who've said, well, you know, I haven't been on stage for three years. Yeah. As if that means they can't do it. And you go, well, that's not long. You'll be fine. Right. Whereas others rightly will say, oh, God, I haven't done it for 25 years. I've just done telly and films and... I don't know if I can speak loud enough. That's interesting you say that, because when I was talking about muscles, I was talking about them in a sort of metaphorical sense of, mm-hmm. uh, of the muscles that you need to do the job. But if you think about speech projection, they are literal physical muscles yeah. that need training before I'm to do that again, I think. And I would love to do it again, just because everybody, I think, sees it as, even now, you know, with all the technology that gives a platform for new drama and new acting... Most people still think of the theatre as the ultimate test, really, of... It just feels like all of the various components of it coming together into one crystallised thing, and that's when you get to measure all of your acting chops all at once. So I think I, I, think I will, but yeah, that's the thing. The last time I did it, I was with my friends that I'd known for three years, doing a play that I loved and was, a, was an absolute scream. Mm. And... I just think if, if I'm going to compare it to that and if I think I'm going to feel as comfortable as that again, or I hope I am, I think I'm only going to be disappointed. There's going to be a completely different energy to it, I think. And I'll get round to it one of these days. I, I know for a fact I will, but... Good. Well, in the meantime, I shall put the Erpingham camp yeah. into the time capsule, the great Joe Orton. And uh, before I put yeah. it in there, I'm going to read it because, in fact, it's one of the few Joe Orton plays I've never read. I've never seen it and I've never read it, so... Do you know it? Do you know what it's about? I don't, know. What's it about? It's about a, a fictional holiday camp at the British seaside in the 50s. Oh. And Mr Erpingham 
runs it with a with an iron fist and eventually the campers revolt and take control of the camp. And like all Orton, you can look at it that way on a surface level, but there's allusions to Greek myth in it. There's political points to be made. There's allusions to the French Revolution and things like that. So one of those plays that you can either, you can see on any number of levels. And almost certainly, as in all his plays, because all his plays were written at a time when homosexuality was illegal. Yeah. So I should imagine that those campers were actually breaking out against the system as well. I'm sure that must be in it. Absolutely, yeah. It certainly is. So yeah, please have a read it. It's very short. But I think it was written for television first and foremost. I think it was written as a television play, which he then put on the stage afterwards. So re- you have to sort of read it with that in mind, but mm. you'll get so much joy out of it. And it, now it's in the time capsule. Generations in the future will get a lot of joy out of it as well. And I think it's a very, I think he's a very important figure. Mm. And Erpingham Camp is part of that very important body of work. So mm. it's in there. Brilliant. Okay, that's the second item going into the time capsule. Okay. Right, so we've got three more. Right, we need to interrupt this podcast. Sorry, in case the podcast provider you're listening to this podcast on wants to play you some ads. But we'll be back in a jiffy. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back, and thanks for waiting. Let's get straight back to John Bradley West and the things he wants to keep safe in his time capsule. The next one is a box of cassettes that my dad had to play in his car, a box of audio cassettes that he used to put into his little cassette player and we used to play when we used to go on day trips and things. And they weren't compilations and they weren't mixtapes because I think both of those terms imply a certain degree of editorial control. Mm-hmm. There was no sequence into them. There wasn't, I don't think there was ever even really a complete song. <laughs> he always used to have a tape in the tape deck of his stereo that he would tape songs off the radio if he liked them or heard them. He'd just reach over and just tape it. But what you get by doing that is, you get a really weird experience where a song will start, usually halfway through, and then that song will be interrupted by another song, ah. which then may be interrupted by a snatch of another song, but then it'll go back to the first song again. <laughs> and some, sometimes he'll, he forgot to stop recording, so you get a bit of the news. <laughs> you get a bit of the news from sort of 1987 on it, and you get a bit of DJ speak, and then there'd be another snatch of a song. They frustrated me at the time because I didn't feel like I'd ever heard a complete song until I was... 15 or something because it was just these snatches and they were a bit frustrating but turning into a Beatles fan the thing that I'd liken the most to is Revolution 9 oh brilliant yeah off off the White Album so it's just it's just like a soundscape of various songs coming in and voices and sometimes there would be little pieces of me from when I was two years old 
just talking to my mum and dad and then that had come in and then a song had come in after that. So So he just used the same cassette over and over again. He just, he would just grab the cassette, put it in and press record. So wherever he'd finished the last time, that's where the new recording would start. 100%. That's amazing. Yeah. And, And they were completely random and he had absolutely no, it wasn't like he was trying to create these soundscapes. It was just a completely random exercise in, in sound. But when I think of them now, and it's so strange, when I hear one of the songs that was on the, one of these tapes in the wild, I expect them to finish where they always finished. I keep expecting them to be interrupted and it sounds weird yeah. to hear the complete song now. And, and those tapes were the soundtrack to all of our days out when I was a kid, all of the trips we went on. And I memorised them in a way that I always knew what was coming up next and there's that familiarity to them. And just recently I bought myself, a, it's a piece of shit actually, it's not working at the moment, but I'll get it to work, a little thing that digitises cassettes. Uh, and I'm going to set about the process of digitising them so I can listen to them wherever I am and have all those memories come back and feel that warmth and security that I sort of associate with those tapes that I listened to every day when I was a kid and... Yeah, I just don't think he was... Because he's not... He doesn't have any sort of artistic inclinations. He's a manual worker. And he just didn't know, I don't think, what he was creating there in terms of an interest. He's sort of inadvertently (laughs) avant-garde sort of sound experiences that he was creating completely by accident. And one day they clicked. I I was listening to one in the car when I was there just a couple of... Maybe 18 months ago. I'm just thinking, these are actually fantastic. Mm. There's nothing frustrating about them. I want to know what the news was like in 1987. I I want to know (laughs) who was reading the news and what the news was. And that as well, like the coin, almost feels like a time capsule in itself. Oh, yeah. These tapes, they're they're of a very specific place and time. And, you know, if I wanted to, I could even find out what exact day, corroborating it with the news, find out what day he actually recorded that on. And I'm just obsessed with them, and I've, I've, I've revised my thinking on them just lately, and I think he's, he's created something that's genuinely musically interesting, mm. completely by accident. The random nature of it. And also it makes me really hanker after the tapes I made when I was a teenager, because we would record the chart from the radio. So you would always miss the intro because the DJ was talking over that. You'd try to start when the DJ stopped talking and then you'd try to stop it before he came back in. Yeah. Oh, my God, yeah, of course. So that thing of things suddenly stopping and then going into another song, you'd have, you know, so that, and then it would cut into another. Oh, yeah, and did that used to wind you up, did you think? Because that, in terms of the... I'm completely not random. I'm quite methodical in my thinking. So that little bit of speak at the end of it would really wind me up. The imperfection of it, I think, could get to me. I don't think I could listen to it. (laughs) Yeah, my dad didn't sort of have any such compunction, really. And and, and I'm glad that he didn't, in a way, because of the way they are now. But that's what I used to find annoying about them when I was a kid, that I was very sort of... I still am. From being very young, I was very ordered in my things. And I, and I just wanted a sequential song, 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 mixtape of songs to listen to. And these used to get on my nerves because you'd be getting into it and then you'd have to come back out of it again. <laughs> you didn't know if you were going to hear it again later on the tape. But I, I've completely revised all that now and I've, I think I might be getting a bit more easy going in my, uh, in my early middle age. <laughs> when my dad used to listen to his records, his vinyl... You could only really listen to, unless you went to a disco or something, you could only listen to records in the house. <laughs> it, it wasn't as portable as it was. Then I think as soon as the cassettes came out, you can almost chart a history of my dad's respect for music declining <laughs> because, because he used to listen to full albums in his armchair with his headphones on and then suddenly he was perfectly happy to have 10 seconds of different songs and DJ speak as he walked around with his Walkman and... There has to be some music in this time capsule because I think it's just so important. But this is a way of of getting some music in there, but also having a lot of memories to it. And because I know that it was my dad's finger on that record and stop button, it feels personal and it feels like I'm listening to something he did and taking that into the future with me, I'll always feel connected to him in some way because I feel connected to his in inverted commas, work, even though it wasn't work. I feel connected to something that he physically did. I think it's perfectly reasonable to argue it as a piece of art. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think so. No, well, I'm definitely going to put your dad's cassettes, all of them, into the time capsule because I would be really fascinated to listen to them. Put them up on YouTube or yeah. something. What do you do? What do you put them on? I don't know. Young people do things like this, don't they? Yeah, I'm sure they do. <laughs> I'm sure they do. These young people. I'll ask one the next time I meet one. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So we've got two more things to go into the time capsule, John. Yeah. I mean, I mean this is, might be a bit of a stretch, this one. I might be being a bit cheeky here. Am I allowed to pick a week of my life? To go in. Yeah, that's fine. So I can open the door of the time capsule, go in, and I'm back in that week. And there it is, that week, yes. Fantastic. Well, this will be a week in 2017 in Los Angeles. Myself and and a lot of the other Game of Thrones cast were there because we were just about to start promoting our next season, season seven. And we were in a hotel in Beverly Hills, and I was just in my room, and... I got a text from my friend Kit and Kit said to me, Kit's a big Manchester United fan like I am. Mm. And he said, I think I've just seen Romelu Lukaku downstairs. (laughs) And I knew that Lukaku was in LA and I knew that he was going to sign for United that day. And then as the day went on, I was getting more texts from people saying, I've just seen Juan Mata downstairs. (laughs) I've just seen Ander Herrera downstairs, Michael Carrick downstairs. And then I, I, thought, I thought, this can't possibly be right. And I went downstairs and I was having a drink in the bar and Juan Mata and Herrera and I think Michael Carrick all walked in to the bar wearing their United training gear. I mean, I, I love Manchester United so much. The, the flat that I'm in now, I bought because of how close it is to Old Trafford. Right. It's a 10-minute walk and I can see it out of my window. And no matter what, this is, I'm, ha- I'm happy here, but the view out of the window sold it for me the second I... I walked in and then it became apparent as the week was going on that the entire Manchester United team and staff were staying in the same hotel as we were. (laughs) And I don't know if you ever had a dream where you're spending time with a hero of yours and you wake up and you're a bit like, oh no, I wish I could sort of climb back into the, go back to sleep, climb back into the dream and have a bit more time with them. But this felt like a real a real-life version of that. I'd never met any of them either. I'd never had any of those experiences. I'd moved to within 10 minutes walk of the ground and I had to fly to Los Angeles before I ever met any of them. <laughs> and it was, it, was, it was an extraordinary week of, of getting to know them. And it turns out a lot of them watched our show as well. And to have Paul Pogba recognise you across the lobby of a hotel, and it, it just feels like it's one of those things where... If you'd have ever told me that a series of events would happen, which would lead me to this moment where <laughs> Paul Pogba was recognising myself and my my own friends in a in a lobby, I, I just I would never have believed you. No, and you know it became quite a because because I, th- I think that once you've been working in in acting and sort of film and TV and entertainment for a while. People within your own industry, you admire them and respect them and stuff, but for some reason they just don't have the same star quality as people you admire outside of your field. So footballers, for me, they've always seemed completely untouchable, unapproachable kind of gods almost. Mm. And I remember, I remember waiting for a lift later on that week and talking to Michael Carrick <laughs> and he said, how are you doing? And because I got so used to them being around, I started to go, do you know what, Michael? My feet are absolutely killing me because I've been sunbathing with my trainers on and I've got, <laughs> and I've got a line of sunburn like round the ridge of my trainers. And as I was saying this to him, I was like, John, shut up. Shut up. You don't, you don't know him. He'd just become Manchester United captain as well. So thinking, oh. you're talking to the club captain about your sunburned feet. <laughs> Please stop. Yeah. This just, isn't, this just isn't, isn't cool at all. And the rest of the week sort of unfolded like that and it really was a dream. And so, so that week, combined with that was the week that I had my first date with my girlfriend who I've been with now for four years. I've been with ever since then. She's from London, but we found out we were both going to be in LA at the same time and had our first date there and fell in love and we've been together ever since. So for any number of reasons, that week is that week is memorable. And, and through that, that experience with United, I, I got to know some of them. I, I texted David De Gea the other day <laughs> about the birth of his baby. <laughs> it's just a very, very strange thing. And, and you know, I have a, I have a sort of, tempestuous relationship with acting as I think a lot of actors do but even if it even if it all stopped tomorrow 
it facilitated that week of my life, which I still look back on as being like a dream. It feels impossible now, mm. but it was, it was so special. So if I can climb back into this time capsule and have a bit of that whenever I wanted, I'd be happiest man going. Yeah, you're just waking up in that hotel. Yeah. I'll have a quick shower, go downstairs, and what? somebody sent me a text message, was that? That can't be right. Yeah, exactly. Not Michael Carrick, he can't be. Exactly. And it was, it was very heartwarming as well to get to know them. Not only the players, but the staff. And it was, and Jose was in charge at the time, and he was absolutely charming and lovely and very hospitable. And all the players were as well. And just knowing that your heroes are nice people. Yeah. A lot gets written about footballers, I think, because of the money they earn and because of certain snobbish outlets of the media that just think they're sort of oiks who've earned themselves a load of money and they don't deserve it. To know them and know how thoroughly decent and kind and charming and lovely they are as people. It was a heartwarming thing. Mm. I was as big a fan as you could possibly be, home every game, away whenever I can. But to know, to get to know them a bit as people, it just made me love them even more. And it's a side of them that the media, and I think a lot of the public don't get to see very often, because when they're interviewed after a game, they have to toe a sort of party line and they have to basically dampen down any of their personality because they just need sound bites. So it's like their personality gets bled out of them yeah. whenever they're in front of those cameras. But if you're meeting them in life and getting to know them a bit, you realise they're just normal lads who are just doing what they do. And there's a lot of pressure on them, but they're just absolutely charming and just trying to get on with it and trying to do their job as well as they possibly can. I remember I heard an episode of this where you talked about going in the director's box and meeting Eric. Yeah. I've never met Eric, but but that was I was so jealous about that. That that must be a moment that you that you'll never forget. Uh, never, never forget. No, no, I think there are things. I also once went into the director's toilet, which only directors are supposed to go into. One of the directors of Man United said, "You can use ours." So I went into the toilet, and Bobby Charlton came and had a piss next to me. No, and it's one of the great moments of my life. Oh, of course, it is. Of course it is. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. And, and I remember I've met Sir Alex a couple of times. The first time I met him, I was a bit nervous, obviously, and I was talking to him. He was telling me about his exercise routine. And then I met him again, probably 18 months later. And he remembered what we talked about. Good Lord. And we sort of continued the conversation. That's lovely, isn't it? Not that I felt that there was any, anything special about me or that our conversation was particularly interesting quite the opposite is more impressive mm. the fact that he remembers people and he invests in them and he's interested in them and i think that that's why he was such a incredible man manager the fact that he invested all of this time and interest in people mm. and you hear stories about that of him you know treating the players with the same respect that he's treated the tea lady there is the receptionist the the ground staff and I really got a sense of that, that, that he's, he's got a magnetic quality to him. And as you say, all these people in the end are just very, they're quite normal people. Exactly. I've met other actors and I've met musicians and things, but to me, not just, I mean, any footballer I've got the greatest of respect for, and I would be sort of starstruck, but to meet the entire team. Amazing. All in one go and go to watch them training because we have we have some we have some other United fans in the cast or we had you know, Kit Harrington's a big United fan, Conleth Hill, enormous United fan, Ian Glenn's a massive mm. United fan, and they invited us all to go and watch them train. <laughs> which was extraordinary as well. Because because the thing I found out about that was when you're standing on the touchline watching them train even twenty feet away, because you're only ever used to seeing park football mm. or playing with your friends the physicality, the skill, the, the power and the strength is almost frightening. Mm. Just the athleticism of them and how hard they can strike a football. But you see the sheer power of these physical specimens and you think, no, they're real athletes. And the quality to see it at such close quarters was quite breathtaking. Yes. It's amazing to see them close up. Yeah. It's a brilliant thing. And I, I'm going to take that whole week, that glorious week which i'm very envious of obviously and i'm going to put that into the time capsule so at any time you or someone else can walk in and just watch them all walking around the hotel oh sensational and every time michael carrick sees you you say john how's the sunburn (laughs) 
Oh, God. Oh, please don't. <laughs> if I was to, you know, it's almost the moment that I want to get rid of that. <laughs> it's almost my embarrassing thing that I never want to think about again. Of all the things I could have spoken to him about, he'd just been made club captain, could have spoke about that, mm. could have talked about any number of things. I talked about my flaky sunburnt feet <laughs> I cringe myself to death <laughs> alright well let's move on to the thing that you do want to put in there and get rid of yeah the thing that I want to get rid of I mean, here's a question if it goes into my time capsule mm-hmm. does the rest of the world never get to experience it again is it gone from the world do you know I've never really considered that I'm going to have to think about it now uh, well I think the idea is that we put it in there but in its own area in a place that we can sort of seal and lock away. Okay. And then it's disappeared, yeah. it's gone. And in fact, you never have to even worry about it again. To an extent, you almost forget that it ever happened. Oh, perfect. Well, the only reason I ask is because the thing that I'm going to put in and banish brings a lot of people a lot of pleasure. So I'm not sure I want to sort of rob the rest of the world of it, but it, it means so much to me to get rid of it and get rid of the memory of it. It's the the dancing teacups at Blackpool Pleasure Beach. I don't know if they're still there. <laughs> I don't know if they're still there now, but but these would be the ones that are from about 1995 that I'd like to get rid of. Mm-hmm. Because I had an experience on there that was so genuinely traumatic and, and horrible, and it, it stayed with me for a very, very long time. I got on them. I, was, I must have only been about six or seven years old. I got on them with, with my nephew, I was an uncle when I was four years old, so my nephew was probably two or three, and I was seven. <laughs> we got on our teacups, and we were just about ready to go, and I saw the bloke. He hadn't gone into his control box yet, so I thought, there's a cup on its own over the other far side. I didn't want to share. I thought, I'm going to go and get my own cup. So I got, I got out of our cup, and I was walking across to this empty cup, and as I was halfway in between the two cups, I felt the floor start to move. I mean, I realised that the ride had started. Oh, no, you're seven. You're seven years old. Well, I was standing on, on the moving floor and they were spinning towards me and I had to try and dodge them. They, they nearly hit me. They, they did hit me a couple of times and, and I was getting battered around, battered from cup to cup and I was screaming with the terror of it and I tried to grab hold of the back of a cup so I could, I could hang on to it. And I, it spun me around a couple of times while I was hanging onto the back and then it threw me off. Oh, God. It threw me off the cup and I clattered against the, the railings of the ride. And then I was pinned to the railings by teacups coming past me and they were hitting me as they were on their way past. And I, and I had bruises all the way, all over my body from where these teacups had been battering me like oh I don't know how long it went on for but I have enough different snapshot memories of it to know that it was going on for quite a long time and they just kept hitting me and I I couldn't get up every time I tried to get up they'd come past again and they'd hit me and I'd be pinned against the rail and I could hear this is another thing that I don't like about it I could hear my mum screaming oh yeah in the terror of it. And, and aside of any, I mean, my mum's not great in a crisis anyway, but aside from anything that was actually happening to me, to hear her in such terror was a, was a horrible thing to hear. And for ages, I could still hear it. Like sometimes when you're going to sleep and you hear something, I could still hear her screaming. And eventually the ride stopped and I was just in floods of tears and my legs were all bruised and... And there's something about it as well. And, it, and, it's, and it's not just the physical pain of it and the terror of it. The fact is that it was for a very, very self-conscious and shy seven-year-old boy, it was very public because a huge crowd had gathered as a, to watch as a crowd will if there's a seven-year-old boy in terrible trouble. For some reason, <laughs> they want to all gather around and watch it. So I was crying and embarrassed as well as much as anything else. And everybody was gathering around and I had to be helped up off the ride in front of this crowd. And I just remember it being abs- like, like an absolute nightmare. And as soon as it stopped, my mum hugged me and I, was, and I was in pieces and she was in pieces. And my sister, who was, how old would she have been? Probably 20 at the time. We're all quite confrontation phobic in our family. We all sort of shy away from things like that. My sister's nothing like that. And my sister flew at the guy who was in charge of it. And there was, there was, what the fuck? And there was, there was a lot of finger pointing going on. And I remember the bloke, the bloke said that 
The excuse he tried to give, I think, I remember exactly what he looked like as well. He looked like John Conliffe. <laughs> he, he looked like he had a great, he had a great big sort of huge, great big grey beard. And he said, while he was doing the final checks and while I was walking from cup to cup, somebody went into the control box and turned it on. Yeah. Before he could get back. And I just never, we just never ever believed that. And we're not, we're not a family who sort of, you know, we didn't think about taking it any further. Once my sister had given him the sort of, give him the rounds of the kitchen and a proper tongue lashing, we thought that punishment had been served. But the fact that he said that, and it was such a sort of implausible, on the spot excuse to make up, I think. I thought that, mm. I think that kind of admitted his guilt in all this. But after that, for a long, long time, I had a real problem with not being able to control my own motion in terms in terms of the idea of not being able to control my own motion was a phobia that I had for a while like I'd never I could never do skateboards I could never do roller skates not that I was missing out on a great deal but I couldn't I I, I, I didn't like moving floors in airports and things and I think I traced it back to that moment of standing on that moving floor and not being able to stop and and yeah it, it was just a really traumatic thing that stayed with me for a while and for all of those reasons I just don't want to think of it again I don't want to hear my mum screaming again and I don't want to feel that sense of panic and that sense of embarrassment in front of all those people so if they if that had never happened I could absolutely live with that I wasn't aware that, that this was going to be as traumatic as it was. When we started, you started telling me this, I think I laughed when you said it started to move. Yeah. In fact, I expected you then to tell me a sort of a story of you standing in there and wobbling about a bit and then the thing stopping and everybody laughing at you or something like that. Yeah. But you nearly died. Thinking about it, yeah. I could have done it. If I'd have been facing the wrong way and one would have come past me and, and clonked me on the head instead of on the leg, for example, or I was, when it threw me off against the railings, I landed in a funny position or I hit my head against the railings as I fell, I, I easily could have done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's bad enough to think about that for myself, really, but I sometimes think of my mum. If something like that would have happened and she took me to Blackpool for the day mm. and I'd have died or I'd have been seriously injured... yeah what that would have done to her. And, and, and sometimes you can't help yourself thinking about the what-ifs in a negative light. Sometimes you let your mind wander to that and then I try and stop thinking about it because it's just so hard, yeah. hard to think about. And strangely, I have to say that I can understand your anger at this man, but I also slightly feel for somebody who all day long just puts little children in a teacup and then goes back and starts yeah. the thing up. The fact that he did once start it up and hadn't properly checked... And then yeah. he's probably looking at the paper or something because he does it all day long. Exactly. And then he thinks, what's that shouting? Why are people screaming? What's going-? And then he realises, this is something I've done. And so that, I wasn't there. I didn't touch it. It wasn't me who turned it on. I feel for this man. Yeah, I mean, us too, really. There was never any talk of reporting it to any management or or trying to get him in trouble. There was, there was never, it was just one of those things that, in the end, it, it wasn't as bad as it could have been, but mm. part of it was my fault as well. I should have just stayed in the teacup that I was in and not wanted to get my own teacup. Even that's a sort of, even that might be a sort of priggish sort of sense of entitlement that I had at that age <laughs> that I was roundly, routinely punished for. But um, if if I can not think about that experience and all of the experiences and all of the stuff that spidered off it, I'd be mm. quite happy. So if the if, if the teacup can go in. Yeah, and I never have to think about that that experience again, especially if they can be preserved in the real world for people who enjoyed it. Yeah, for luckier kids, yes. should we say, luckier kids who that never happened to to enjoy, then that's fine. But it wouldn't bother me if I never saw one ever again. Well, then you shan't. I shall put it into the time capsule. Thank you. It's gone. That's good to know. I... When we finish this recording, I might then ring you back up and say, uh, John, do you remember those teacups? And you'll go, the what? <laughs> Mike, I think you've gone a bit mad. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, what a lovely day. <laughs> what a lovely moment that'd be. Wouldn't it, just? Well, John, yeah. how lovely to talk to you and how lovely to get to know you and to find out these things about your life. It's been really fascinating talking to you. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I'll, uh, I'll look forward to many more of these to come in the, the future. I can't, you know, it's part of my podcast rotation now and it's not going anywhere and I'd recommend it to anybody. Bless you. That was lovely, Mike. I really enjoyed it.
You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, John Bradley West. If you liked it, you can get every new episode sent straight to your podcast app by subscribing. And if you do, we'd love it if, when you find the time, you could rate us and perhaps leave a review. Thanks. You can follow us on social media if you search for me or at my TC pod. And you can hear the theme tune without me talking all over it anytime you like via Spotify. It was written and performed by Pass the Peas Music. This has been a cast-off production produced by John Fenton Stevens. So that's John Fenton Stevens, Mike Fenton Stevens and John Bradley West on My Time Capsule. So named, I should imagine, because someone called My Time married a Mr. Capsule. Let's hope they're proud of their little offspring. Lots of love. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.